We're going to be looking once again at 1 Corinthians this morning. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, we're at 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 27. So we're going to finish out chapter 9. That's on page 957 of the ESDP Bibles, if you're using one of those. Otherwise, you can just turn to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to pick it up at 15. That's where we left it off last week. Remember, this is part of our larger series, uh, a roadmap for raw Christians, because Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. These were first-generation Christians that were coming out of a culture that was, was saturated with pagan idolatry and immorality, and they were new at being followers of Jesus Christ. So much of 1 Corinthians is this roadmap on how to get from being a raw, brand new believer to a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy and errant word this morning, we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want to see the true meaning of this passage. We, we want to understand your word. So help us to see the meaning of, of this passage of Scripture and then also how to best apply it to our life as we follow Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There was a couple who decided to have some work done on their house. They had some, some flaws that they wanted covered up. They wanted to change the color in some of their rooms, so they contacted a few contractors and they had had one over for the estimate. He came in and they pointed out some things they wanted there. There were some cracks above the door frames and above the windows. They wanted those gone and, and they, they showed what color. So he took some measurements and you know had his tablet and was, was entering information. But based on the, the, the cracks that he saw, he also took a look outside and he was out there for a few moment, moments and then he came back in and, and he told the couple, he said, this is, this is all right. He said, I can do this. Um, these cracks, I can make those disappear, uh, whatever color you want, but come outside, I want to show you something. And so they walked outside with him, and he showed them the, the foundation of the house and then the side of, of the brick, and there was this nice stair-stepping crack all the way through the foundation and through the brick. And he said, that's beyond me. He said, I just wanted to point this out, that the reason why most likely you're getting those cracks is because you've got a deeper issue here. You, you, you've got uh, something that's going on that's bigger than those cracks on the inside. And he was right. Yeah, to be sure, those, those interior cracks, those flaws, they need to be fixed. Those were unsightly. But they had a deeper issue going on than simply a couple of cracks along the wall. They had cracks in the foundation. The raw believers in Corinth had a deeper issue than eating meat offered to idols in pagan temples during these cultic meals. And to be sure, that was a problem. That was sinful. That was something they needed to, to walk away from. But there was a deeper issue. And in our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians 9, 15-27, Paul draws attention to the deeper issue. There were some believers in Corinth who had forgotten or maybe were ignoring that not only were they called away from and out of ongoing unrepentant sin, yes, of course, but they were also called for something. 
If, because they were in Christ, not only were they to, to discard and, and cut off ongoing unrepentant sin, but they were also called to move forward in Christ. And that was the deeper issue. The, the goal was not just to try to reach some kind of neutral bubble where they were staying away from sin, but nothing else. The, the goal is to get you, uh, as followers of Christ, to, to move forward in Christ, serving Jesus Christ and his church. And that was the deeper issue. Paul exposes this by way of his own example and by direct confrontation. And we're going to see both in this passage. And then we're going to see how best apply it and what it might look like today. So we're going to read this. This is 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul begins in, in verse 15 by saying, I have not made any use of these rights. And of course, he's speaking about receiving pay for his work at the church in Corinth. And this is the second time he's made this statement. The first is in the second half of verse 12. And then he adds, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. This is Paul saying, look, I, I know I'm talking a lot about the right of gospel workers to receive pay, and I'm, I'm making this case for us. I'm, I'm talking a lot about, about money. He said, but please hear me. This is not some passive-aggressive way to let you know that I, I really do want to be paid. He's saying, no, I do not want to receive any pay. I, I don't want it. And then a passionate comment. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He calls it a ground for boasting. And, and based on what we looked at last week, we might say, well, hold on a minute. Last week, he said he intentionally chose not to receive pay from them in order to remove a gospel, or excuse me, in order to remove an obstacle in the way of the gospel. But now he's saying it's something that he's using as a grounds for boasting. So which is it? Of course, the answer is both. It is both an intentional choice 
designed to remove an obstacle in the way of the gospel, and it serves as his grounds for boasting. So let's go back to the first one. If you remember from last week, the reason not receiving pay was removing an obstacle was because by doing that, Paul was separating himself He was distinguishing himself from the other false teachers that were present in Corinth at that time. So by by not receiving pay and by everyone else that that was receiving pay, he stood apart. So so their gospel and their Jesus was was seen for what it was. And his gospel and his Jesus that he was proclaiming stood apart and and wouldn't be confused with with that false gospel and that false Jesus. He calls them uh, later in 2 Corinthians. We read 2 Corinthians 11, um, which confirmed this, where he calls them false apostles. He, he calls them deceitful. And, and he tells us explicitly in that 2 Corinthians 11 passage, he says, the reason I'm doing this is to make sure that I'm undermining the claim of those that stand over there, that they're doing the same work that I'm doing. You remember that from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11? You can go back and review that. But he's saying, look, no, I'm going to continue to do this because uh, I want to be sure that their claim of being the same as me is, is shown to, and revealed as not true. I, I want to make sure I stand apart and so that the true gospel stands apart and the true Jesus stands apart. So that's how it's removing an obstacle. But then what's all this talk about boasting? For Paul, weaknesses were something that he boasted about. Weaknesses were something he boasted about because they allowed the power of Christ to be displayed more clearly through him. And the idea is this. If you had someone who checks all the boxes according to worldly standards as you know, important person, uh, stand out in the community, I'm really wealthy, really strong, really good looking, really eloquent speaker. I mean, just check all the boxes. And then you've got Paul, who tells us, you know, he, he wasn't that eloquent of a speaker, and, and he really wasn't that camera friendly. He wasn't, he wasn't that fun to look at. And, and, and he wasn't strong. He wasn't a big VIP. In fact, he was he was persecuted. He, he was over here weak, and, and there, there's somebody over here strong. We, the world would expect something pretty spectacular or amazing or something, something of high quality to come out of somebody like that, but it wouldn't expect something all that great to come out of somebody like Paul. Paul saying, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's God's way of confusing and, sh- and shaming and, and turning the world upside down on its head and it's God's way of saying, I don't need all that. I can glorify myself through somebody like that. I, I can work out my grand redemptive plan. I can work out my purposes through weakness. I don't need that. And so Paul boasted of his weaknesses. Christ's power was displayed more clearly and more brightly because it was coming through something that was weak. Verse 16, Paul says, um, this is what does not serve as a ground for my boasting. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So preaching the gospel in and of itself, it it really isn't a ground for boasting. It it could come from somebody who appears strong in the world or somebody who appears weak in the world. Uh, It makes no difference in that sense. 
And, but he also writes, for necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul is continuing in the line of the old covenant prophets who, if you recall, they, they proclaimed the message that God gave to them, whether they wanted to proclaim it or not. God would call a prophet and, and assign a task to him, and the, the prophet was duty-bound simply to, to, to do his job. I mean, he, he wasn't allowed to alter the message. He wasn't allowed to complain about the message. You just deliver the message. That's your job. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, I, I have to do this. I'm compelled. I don't have any choice in the matter. God called me to do this. I can't boast in, in just proclaiming the gospel. And then verse 17, he's explaining in a rather convoluted way that if he had made the choice to be an apostle, if this was his idea, then sure, then I could be paid. But this isn't my idea. I'm as a bondservant. And we see how he contrasts those two different circumstances. If I do this of my own will, as a free person, or, but if not of my own will, as a bondservant or as a slave. And since Paul refers to himself as a servant of the Lord in several places, we know that he falls into the second category. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he considers himself a servant or a bondservant of Christ. Verse 18, what then is my reward? What, what pay is left for Paul? He answers that by saying that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So it serves a dual purpose. It, it removes the obstacle that's in the way of the gospel by distancing himself from the other people that are proclaiming a different gospel and a different Jesus and it serves as a ground for his boasting because it's a weakness. It's a weakness in the eyes of the world. If you investigate a little further, you'll see that the only thing that Paul boasts about are his weaknesses. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12.5 says, On my own behalf I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. He returns to that several times. And if we went to, again, to 2 Corinthians, we'd see that kind of um, catalog of, of hardships. You remember that prison, imprisonments, beatings, um, various dangers, uh, being hungry and cold. All those things are, are weaknesses. They're weaknesses in the eyes of the world. The world doesn't want to follow somebody who's cold and hungry and imprisoned and being beaten and hunted down and persecuted and doesn't really know how to talk right and, and doesn't look good. The world doesn't want to follow somebody like that. Those are weaknesses. And God works through those weaknesses. Well, let's connect one more set of dots. How is Paul's choice to, to not accept payment a weakness exactly? It, it's because of this. He did not accept support from the church of Corinth. He instead turned to self-support, tent-making. Manual labor. And while it accomplished the goal of, of separating himself from the other teachers, it also carried a significant amount of social stigma. Barnett writes, quote, Paul's contemporaries generally regarded work as appropriate for slaves, but not for free citizens. Artisans and manual workers were looked down upon. Hawk writes, stigmatized as uneducated and often useless. Artisans, to judge from scattered references, were frequently reviled or abused, often victimized, seldom if ever invited to dinner, 
never accorded status. So Paul intentionally chose that. And it's a weakness in the world's eyes. In addition to that physical, or excuse me, that social stigma, there was some physical weakness involved with it too. Uh, this was labor-intensive work. Tent making was sewing pieces of leather together to make tents and, and portable shelters for, for various reasons. And they didn't have any industrial sewing machines back in the first century. So imagine trying to push a needle through thick leather. That's hard work. He would have spent long hours bent over a workbench with, with aching fingers and, and forearms and hands with very little pay. Extra biblical evidence suggests that manual laborers in Paul's day did not live well. Their, their pay allowed them to essentially have a hand-to-mouth existence. They've been described as hungry, poor, often cold, poorly clothed, so some of those hardships in 2 Corinthians in that catalog may have been directly related to his tent making. Listen again, this is 2 Corinthians 11.26. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and, in expo and exposure. So as a result of his intentional choice to support himself in this hand-to-mouth existence, the, some of these things that he mentions may have been directly a result of that, of that choice. So it was a weakness. And for Paul, his weaknesses were something that he boasted about because they allowed the power of Christ to be displayed and magnified. That was his reward. To magnify Christ through suffering and hardship and weakness. Do you see how off that sounds to us? We, we generally want to get away from hardship. We want to get away from suffering, for sure. We want to minimize that. We want to put it in our past. We want to get beyond that. Nobody wants to camp out on suffering or hardship or weakness. Paul was told by Christ in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul says, all things to all people. So this is the next section. We're going to look at 19 through uh, uh, 23. Just to review though, so let, let's make sure we understand this. Paul is using his freedom in Christ not to receive payment, even though he, he has the right to receive payment in order to avoid placing an obstacle in the way of Christ. Paul using, is using his freedom in Christ to display weakness, which he boasts about because it displays the power of Christ more brightly. And Paul uses his freedom in Christ to become all things to all people in order to save them. And that's what 19 through 23 is about. So he says, I'm not self-serving. He says, I'm a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then 20 through 23, we see this pattern. To the blank, I became as a blank. And we see that repeated four times. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Under the law, under the law. Outside the law, outside the law. Weak, weak, that I might win. And then again, fill in the blank. So four categories. We want to make sure we understand those. First of all, Jews... 
and under the law. Those are essentially the same category, except those under the law would include non-Jews who have converted to Judaism and are worshiping the God of Israel. Well, how did Paul become a Jew and as one under the law? Well, first of all, he was a Jew. Let's not forget that. Paul was born a Jew. But he was also in Christ. And because he was in Christ, he knew that the Old Covenant law was, was something that had been abrogated. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's no longer in effect. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in Christ, Paul's not looking to the law as a source of his righteousness. So circumcision means nothing. Ceremonial laws mean nothing. Uh, temple worship, the whole priestly sacrificial system, nothing. Uh, Christ is the once and for all sacrifice. We don't need to offer up animals anymore. All food has been declared unclean. But when he's proclaiming Jesus to the Jews, he goes ahead and in these non-essential areas, goes along with them. So I, he's trying to bring the gospel to, to the Jews. So he says, all right, yeah, I'll abstain from these particular foods. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll wash my hands or whatever you know, custom happens to be. Sure, I'll go along with that. Because it's spiritually irrelevant. He's, he's not doing those things and in his heart trying to achieve a righteous status before God. He, they're just washing hands, eating food. Now, this doesn't mean that, that Paul went so far as to, to violate his conscience or to go against the New Covenant command. So you see the parentheses there where he says, though not being myself under the law. So Paul wouldn't have brought an animal sacrifice to the temple. He wouldn't have done that. That would have nullified the work of Christ. But in non-essential manners, he was willing to adapt his outward behavior in order not to give offense to those he was attempting to reach with the gospel. The clearest example of this may be Acts 16.3. And it says this, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul wanted Timothy to come along with him on a second missionary journey, and so he knew he was going to be encountering some Jewish people that he wanted to present the gospel to, and so he had Timothy circumcised, not because he believed in the old covenant sign of circumcision as being necessary, but because he didn't want to create an unnecessary um, disturbance among the people he was reaching or attempting to reach. So Timothy's mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, so the Jewish law considered him a Jew, but because he, was, he had a Greek father, he was never circumcised. Paul says, let's just go ahead and do that. Because to bring an uncircumcised Jew into a synagogue would have created a disturbance. And, and the people he was trying to reach may not have been able to overlook that. that. That may have been enough for them to focus on that they couldn't even listen to the message. So Paul says, okay, well, let's, just, let's just take care of that then. It's a non-essential matter. Outside the law, same principle, only reversed. When he's presenting the gospel to Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, he doesn't bother abstaining from certain foods. He doesn't do the ceremonial hand-washing. He doesn't do any of those things that the Jewish customs prescribed. Again, we see some parentheses um, saying, uh, not, that I, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm willing to go as far as I can to reach these Gentiles, but I'm not going to sin. 
I'm not going to attend the cultic meals that I'm telling you guys not to. I'm not going to offer a pagan sacrifice. I wouldn't go that far. I'm not going to participate in the immorality that's, that's happening at these things. But I'll do just about anything else. As long as it's not sinful. And then we have the weak. Tempting, it's tempting to think when he mentions the weak about the weak mentioned in chapter 8, because that's kind of the immediate context. Those in the church that are of weaker conscience, but that doesn't really work because he says in order to win the weak. So it's hard to see why he would try to win people who have already been won for Christ. So it probably, instead, most likely is a reference to social status or becoming weak. And we've seen that contrasted within the letter too. For example, 1 Corinthians one twenty six says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So there's that contrast between weak and strong in the world's eyes. And Paul says, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be weak. And we just talked about how he was willing to do that. He, he engaged in tent making. He concludes, verse 22, that by all means I might save some. All means. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. So 22 and 23, that's a, that's a summary statement. He's given examples. He gave all those examples in 19 through uh, or in 15 through 22, and then at the very end, he's saying, okay, this is what all this is about. I'm leveraging everything I have available, all means, in order to reach people. And, and this is directed at these raw believers. This is the deeper issue. He's saying, you're, you're not doing this. You're, you're not even coming to the, to the neutral bubble. You're, you're still over here and I'm going unrepentant sin. Not only do you need to turn away from that, you need to keep moving and use all means that God has provided you to serve Christ in this church, to reach others, to go and make disciples. And then this last section is, is the deeper issue directly confronted and he begins with some athletic illustrations. Verse 24, uh, he, he says, okay, do you know how in a race that um, you've got all these runners and they've been training for a really long time and they're all, they're all trying to compete for that prize, that, that first place prize, but, but you also know there's only one that crosses the finish line first and everybody else is after the winner. Do that. Run like that. Live the Christian life. He's almost, like, he's almost saying, live the Christian life as if there's one slot open in the kingdom of God. One place. Do everything you can. Living for Christ so that you win the prize. Verse 25, the athletic illustration continues. It takes self-control, hard work, intentionality to win um, they, they would spend months for these athletic games, uh, the Olympic Games in, in Athens, of course, and then there were some other, uh, other competitions that were very similar. And the athletes would go into training for months at a time, and that's all they would do. They would devote themselves training, 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 kind of like professional athletes today. That's all they do. That's their job, working out, training, practicing. Paul is saying, how much more so 
Should followers of Christ be living intentionally? They, they compete for these reeds made out of pine or celery that would have already begun to wilt by the time they're placed on the winner's head. Maybe a few seconds or maybe a couple minutes of applause. That's it. Not bragging rights until somebody else wins next year. How, how fading. How transient. Paul says, what we're working for is so permanent. It's so important. It, it, it's so eternal that it has to affect how we live today. More so than these, than these athletes that are, that are training for an imperishable prize. And then verse 26, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. Uh, we've all seen the Olympic runners that, that start off on the track, and if they're, they're going several times around, they're, they're in these staggered lanes. What happens after they get to a certain point in the race? They're allowed to move in to the inside lane. What, what if we watched an Olympic race and somebody said, I'm just going to stay in the outside lane the whole time? We'd probably say, what, you know, the, the, the competitors and everybody else, what are you doing? You're intentionally throwing the race? Why are you staying in the outside lane? You're, you're, you need to move in. Or what if they just departed from the track and they just started running around in the infield? We think they're insane or that they're, they're blowing a once-in-a-chance once in a lifetime chance. Well, that's the same thing. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not running aimlessly. I'm running in a straight line towards Christ. I do not box as one beating the air. Beating the air or shadow boxing is not the same thing as real boxing. It's going to be very difficult to win a boxing match if you never actually make contact with your opponent. And they didn't use gloves back then, by the way. They had boxing. So whether you were training or whether you were in the, in the actual fight, your, your, your hands had to have been conditioned. Can you imagine walking into a, a boxing match never actually having struck anything with your hand? Paul says, I'm not just pumping my arms in the air. I'm making contact. My, my punches are connecting. I'm, I'm landing with my punches. That's how I'm living my life. Verse 27, I batter or pummel or subdue my body. I make it a slave. I bring it into servitude. He's saying I do whatever it takes to discipline my life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now Paul's not really saying I could lose my salvation. What he's saying is this applies to everyone, even me. Even me. It's a warning. And it's preparing the way for chapter 10. Lord willing, we're going to look at that next week. Paul's saying this, those who do not take action, those who fail to discipline themselves, who fail to exercise self-control, who instead, instead persist in ongoing, unrepentant sin, they're going to be disqualified. And to them specifically, he's saying, look, if you persist in this ongoing unrepentant sin, if you persist in going to these pagan temples, participating in these cult cultic meals, and all the immorality that goes on during and after, if you continue to, to make that a part and of the fabric of your life, you're going to be DQ'd. You're not going to finish the race well. You won't receive a prize. No crown of life. 
That's the deeper issue. If we had to summarize this passage, we could say something like this. Paul's teaching the Corinthian raw believers by his own example that Christian freedom is to be used for the sake of the gospel and completing the mission of the church. By using his freedom and choosing to to support himself, Paul has not only set himself and his message apart from the false apostles and the false teachers, but he has displayed weakness which magnifies the power of Christ working through him. Paul shows them by example that in non-essential matters, they must be willing to adapt their outward behavior so as not to give offense to those they are attempting to reach with the gospel. And he concludes by reminding them what is at stake and by encouraging them to live self-controlled, disciplined, intentionalized for Christ. That's the message here. When, when we look at this passage, we're first confronted that, that they seem to have forgotten what Christ had saved them from. They, remember, the issue here is this pagan idolatry and, and the immorality and, and participating with the world and, and everything that's going on with that. It's almost as if they've forgotten what Christ had saved them from and that they're to leave that behind. Uh, Paul says, um, that, that thing you're doing, that very thing, that's what you should have cut off. Uh, you should have stopped that. That's what you've been saved from. Why are you returning it? Proverbs 26.11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his, his folly. Paul said, why are you going back there? Why would you even consider that? How, how have you possibly justified this in your mind? Don't you know that those who walk in ongoing unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God? That was the message from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Remember that? Do not be deceived. You, you can't walk that way. You can't live that way. It doesn't matter what you profess to believe. That, that way of living outside of Christ with, with a life devoted to walking in sin, that, that's just incompatible. You're going to be disqualified. You've been saved to a new life in Christ. So not only are you called to life apart from ongoing unrepentant sin, but you're also called to a life for Christ. And that freedom that you've been given in Christ is not to be used for selfish reasons. It's certainly not to be used to participate in these cultic meals, as you are. And so he teaches them by example. He says, do you see what I'm doing? Do you see how I'm consumed with glorifying God? And Paul lays out all these examples. I'm, to this, I'm this. To this, I'm this. To those under the law. To the weak. So by his own example, he's showing them that. And then by direct confrontation, he said, these runners run like there's only one slot available and you need to get it. In all their rawness and worldliness, they had forgotten or more likely ignored. I think forgotten is a little too generous. He'd spent time with them in Corinth. They'd heard Paul's teaching. I don't think they forgot I think they were ignoring what the mission of the church was and just how high the stakes were. I think they forgot that there was a deeper issue. And so we as the church today, we need to ask, do, have, do we forget what the deeper issue is? Not, not in the same circumstances that Corinth was in, of course. We, we're in a different spot today. But I think sometimes as believers we're so concerned about staying away from sin 
and, and, and cutting ourselves off from, from ongoing unrepentant sin, which is a good thing to do. We, we should be doing that. But we're so concerned about that that if we just reach the neutral middle zone, the, the being on the bubble uh, of the level, that we're right in the middle, we're like, all right, I'm doing it. I am living the Christian life successfully because I'm, I'm not walking in un, unrepentant sin. But we've forgotten there's a dip, deeper issue here. We're not trying to reach the middle neutral zone. We're trying to live for Christ. Do we ever forget that? We may be avoiding ongoing sin, which is good and right and worth praising God for, but if we're not intentionally living for Christ and serving His church, are we really called, are, are we doing what we are really called to do? Could we, could we validly, legitimately say that? We need to leverage everything for Christ, that by all means, we might save some. So the question we need to ask ourselves in the mirror, are we using all means? Are we using some means? Are we using any means? I'm not sure if this is the case anymore, but the last time I went to a t-ball game, they had all these four and five-year-olds kind of running around on the field, and it kind of looked like baseball. And, but one of the things that stood out was inevitably there was always at least one outfielder that did the old glove on the face. There, there's something about the shape of the glove and the smell of the leather. It's just irresistible to some, to some kids. And so you'll see somebody out in the outfield and they'll have the glove in the face and they'll be looking through the little pinholes of the, of the glove webbing in the air and they're looking at their friends and waving and sometimes they'll look down and if they're really into it, they'll actually sit down on the ground and start looking at the grass or, or something through their glove. And the parent reaction is usually, oh, that's cute. Look at him. And then they'll say, pay attention. And it, it usually elicits a few chuckles, and it, it's kind of funny. Imagine if there was an outfielder in a Major League Baseball game that was standing in the outfield with his glove on his face, looking at the sky, and then sitting down and looking at the grass, maybe even laying down on his stomach, just kind of staring at ants. I wouldn't be cute anymore. There wouldn't be any chuckling going on. Anywhere, in the stands, in the dugout, the fans watching on TV, it might elicit some anger, but I don't think it would be cute to anyone. How much more so the church? If we're hunkering down and trying to avoid sin, but we're not intentionally serving Christ in His church, it's kind of like having our face in the glove. I mean, we may be on the field, but we're not in the game. Paul said, by all means, I, may, I might say some. What means has God given you to serve him and his church? Paul made a difficult and intentional choice. He surrendered his rights for the sake of the gospel. What kind of intentional choices are we making for the gospel? What, what kind of rights are we foregoing? What kind of weaknesses are we embracing? for the sake of the gospel? What kind of non-essentials are we willing to 
to, to give in to give in on in order to to reach someone for Christ. Because the stakes are high. People are going to heaven and hell. We all have a day coming for us. I know we don't want to think about it. And the world certainly doesn't encourage us to spend any time thinking about it. But we all have a day coming when this time, this short life, is going to be over. And we're going to transition from where we are to heaven or hell. The stakes are high. And as far as proclaiming the gospel, as far as accomplishing the mission of the church, we're it. This is it. We're it. It's the church. It's believers. It's you and me. The baton has been passed from those who have gone before us and, and their time is over. They're no longer with us. And, and when we're done, we're going to hand off the baton to somebody else in a very, very short, relatively short period of time. It's going to be another generation sitting here and we're going to be gone. So this is it. This is how God has chosen to communicate his gospel message to people. It's through his church. Luther and Calvin are gone. R.C. Sproul is gone. He's not here anymore. We're it. We're up. The church today, this generation is, is up. So we will want to pay attention to how we are spending this brief time on earth before we are reunited with our Savior. You see, Paul, what's, what's really driving Paul is Christ. He's looking to Jesus. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus was the ultimate display of weakness. Jesus was the ultimate display of weakness. It doesn't get much weaker than the cross. The, the cross in the world's eyes uh, was, was the lowest form. That was kind of zeroing out all the categories that the world looks for. No power, no wealth, no status, uh, very unsightly to look at. I mean, the cross was reserved for the lowest criminals of the, of the, of the lowest nature. And so when someone saw someone on the cross, that was just complete rejection. As a passerby, you looked at someone on the cross and you think, fail. Complete failure. At least I'm not that guy. That's where Jesus went. This ultimate display of weakness was also the ultimate display of God's power. It shines brightly through that ultimate display of weakness because on the cross, his shed blood was given for his people so that when we turn to him in faith, we are saved. It had to be the cross. It had to be that weakness. And we have to turn to the cross today. If we want to be forgiven our sin, if we want to be allowed entrance into the kingdom of God, we must turn to Jesus, repent of our sin, and place our faith in him. Only Jesus saves. As we close out, I, I can't help but think of this race illustration that, that, that Paul closes the chapter out on. Um, the finish line. When we think about the people, the original listeners to this letter, th there were some that probably heard Paul's words, but in the end continued to attend the cultic meals and participate in the idolatry and the immorality that was taking place. They had justified it in their mind and they didn't want to stop. So they didn't. After all, who is this Paul that we have to listen to him? They thought they would be fine. After all, they joined the church. They'd been baptized. They had nothing to worry about. 
So they could do whatever they wanted. This is what their freedom was for. It was for them. So they continued to live for themselves and they ignored the deeper issue of living for Christ and his church. And then there were some, another group, that probably heard and heeded Paul's teaching, even though everyone else around them in the world told them there's nothing to worry about, it's fine, you're good. But they addressed the deeper issue, and they began using the means God had given them for the sake of the gospel. They stopped attending the cultic meals. They stopped participating in ongoing unrepentant sin, even though it meant denying themselves, even though it meant following Paul and enduring weakness, loss, or giving up what was they thought due them, even though it was costly. They started to run the race as it was intended to be run. Two different groups, two different endings, two different finishes. We're all going to cross the finish line one day. How we finish depends on how we run today. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Amen. Father, we look at the example of Paul, which causes us to look at the example of Christ. And we see what it looks like to to run the race well. In Paul, we see what it looks like to run the race perfectly in Christ. Father, we want to run the race well. We trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. In response to everything you've done for us, would you enable us to use all means to serve you in your church? Or at least some means? And maybe we could just start with any means. We're not going to depend on our own strength. We're, we understand that you work through weakness. We don't have to have any of those worldly boxes checked. We simply have to follow Christ in faith. And bend the knee to our Master. Allow the power of Christ and the Spirit of Christ to work through us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.